0: The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the Century of Lies.
1: Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. This is Chaz Dean Becker. My father is training his son so that if any time he is unable to come to the microphone, the Drug Truth Network shall continue. The following is taken from a recent Students for Sensible Drug Policy Forum in Washington, D.C. First up, you will hear the voice of former cop and a founding member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, perennial Drug Truth Network reporter Howard Wooldridge.
0: If you give us more money, all we're going to do is arrest more drug dealers, which means you have to build more prisons. And what is the result? Nothing, because every drug dealer ever arrested, shot, or killed is replaced. Just like that, and just like that. And every staffer knows it. Every congressman knows it. But what has to happen is you have to make the phone ring to make them change their vote. I'm also advocating an arrest-free uh, drug, an arrest-free 911 call for any alcohol or drug overdose. Let's say yes to life. In the in the in the context of prohibition, let's start thinking of saving lives of those. Keep you've heard it in your campuses. Kids are dying of an alcohol or drug overdose because the person supplying the tequila or the cocaine does not want to call 911. Let's say yes to life. I'm calling for a national commission that, that uh, Walter Cronkite asked for a couple of years ago to study this entire issue. And I'm also asking for people to uh, less than that is bring in the best uh, addiction doctors in the country to uh, to study this issue as to what would happen if you actually legalize and regulate. And on the flip side of that, when you when I urge you see your state senator, see your state rep, they have uh, office hours just like your 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 uh, college professors. When they're out of session, they'll see you for 10 minutes. You can come in there and make your pitch. But, you know, when, when they come in there and they cross their arms like this, and you can just tell you're not going anywhere, just say, you know, be careful out there, Mr. Politician. Tell your boss, because right now the rumors are that drug dealers are now uh, funding the, uh, the politicians of the world. So be sure your, your boss doesn't all of a sudden accept money from a, a, a drug dealer, because, of course, they're all in favor of this particular policy. Sometimes it tr- pays to be edgy.
1: Next up, you will hear Oscar-nominated screenwriter, author of the book Drug Crazy, and chairman of Common Sense for Drug Policy, Mr. Mike Gray.
2: And, uh,
3: but I, I want to quickly get through it in, in a few minutes here the history of drug prohibition. Most people think it began with Nixon, but of course. It actually began with a lunatic named Hamilton Wright in, uh, in 1914. Uh, he, uh, he actually began in 1909. He was uh, a doctor who was uh, made uh, famous for the discovery that Beriberi is an infectious disease. It is not, of course. It happens to be a vitamin deficiency, but by the time his mistake was discovered, he had already married well. He married the head of the, the Republican Party, Senator Washburn's daughter, and uh, he... Uh, Uh, looking for employment. His new father-in-law installed him on the Chinese Opium Commission of 1909, and all of this disaster flowed from there. He he made up his mind, just out of thin air, that that not only did the Chinese have a terrible drug problem, but that the United States had a heroin problem that was even worse. None of this was true. There were only 200,000 addicts in the United States, according to the best numbers we've been able to unearth. And uh, these people were taxpaying, productive citizens with a medical problem, not unlike diabetics, who went to their doctor, got a prescription for morphine or heroin or whatever their particular Jones was, and then they, uh, they shot up or took the pills. In those days, morphine, of course, was powerful enough that you could take pills. You didn't have to shoot it in order to get the bang. You could simply get pharmaceutical morphine, and and, and it was uh, not required that you shoot it up in order to feel it. So uh, you you had a drug problem. You went to your doctor. He wrote your prescription. You went down to the corner druggist. You gave him the prescription. He gave you the drugs. You did the drugs, and then you went to work. Some surveys showed that uh, 80% of the uh, people in one drug registry in Florida were tax-paying, productive citizens before the Harrison Narcotics Act? On that day, when the act was uh, was unconstitutionally uh, uh, passed, and it was not a, an they did not outlaw drugs, by the way. It only uh, required uh, a, a tax. It was intended to gather information. In other words, the Congress did not believe that, that there was a heroin problem in the United States either. So they passed this law, the Harrison Narcotics Act, to collect information. A penny a pound was the tax. And that way they could keep finding out how much was coming in and how much was using, and they would keep track. But the, the clever guys down at the Treasury Department, uh, along with uh, the enterprising guy, who uh, Dr. Wright, who had written, uh, assisted in engineering the law, had an extra clause in there. A uh, uh, physician will be able to prescribe pro- uh, morphine in the course of his professional practice only. And it was interpreted not by doctors, but by the Treasury Department, that uh, maintenance addiction was not uh, normal practice. That was uh, feeding junkies. So all of a sudden, we took 200,000 medical patients who were tax paying, productive citizens and declared that they were dope fiends. Not surprisingly, it was a self fulfilling prophecy. And I got one quote here I'll read to you that came from a medical journal that I unearthed at the time, which was incredibly. Six weeks after the Harrison Act went into effect, the New York Medical Journal carried an ominous observation. The immediate effects of the Harrison anti-narcotics law were seen in the flocking of drug habituates to hospitals and sanatoriums. Sporadic crimes of violence were reported, due usually to desperate efforts by addicts to obtain drugs. The really serious results of this legislation, however, will not appear, will appear only gradually, and will not always be recognized. These will be the failure of promising careers, the disrupting of happy families, the commission of crimes which will never be traced to their real cause, and the influx into hospitals for the mentally disordered of many who would otherwise have lived socially competent lives. Okay, so predicted it right down to the, to the button.
1: And our last voice you will hear today from the SSDP conference is the president of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS.org, Dr. Rick Doblin. Thank you.
4: Uh, I'm not sure if you all realize it, but you are living in an incredible historical moment, and from the point of view of drug policy, from the point of view of psychedelics, from the point of view of our culture, the Supreme Court case that Richard just mentioned, the experiences at Burning Man, and how they're more and more out in the open, you're actually now at the tail end of a 40-year cycle, and the beginning of a new one. And I spent my uh, teenage years growing up in the 60s, and what I saw then was this flowering of the, the sort of psychedelic culture, and I saw it being crushed. And in 1971, before most of you were born, when I was 18, I decided that I would devote myself to trying to become an underground psychedelic therapist but that, that was going to be my career goal. I had been a draft resistor and was thinking I was going to go to jail because of that and my parents were thinking, well, you know, you're never going to be a professional. You can't get a license for anything if you're in jail or if you've been a prisoner. So, I felt like the normal career goals were not open to me. And I also grew up uh, in a Jewish family, I identify as Jewish and I really grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. Uh, And what that made me starkly aware of was how the intellectual uh, capabilities of our culture um, are the technological development that we've been able to uh, produce these incredible miracles of the internet that we have so overdeveloped intellectually and so underdeveloped emotionally that the whole world is at risk and at stake and that mental illness and scapegoating and prejudice, that those are direct threats to all of us. I mean, I see we see it in the drug war, we see it in just the whole concept of racism, that it's a question of, can the human species evolve in an emotional manner sufficient to handle the intellectual developments that we have? Or are we going to destroy ourselves through... Wars, the technologies that Ethan was talking about of developing a totalitarian state are really very present and it's a very um, strong possibility that we may go in that direction. So how can we deal with the insanity at the center in many ways of the human psyche? How do we deal with that that produces the murderous destruction of the scapegoating? And we see it, I would say, in President Bush, this idea of, Everything is black and white. The evil is all out there. God's on our side. We're, we're you know, anointed by God and these evil people out there. And we can, of course, become just like that. We can torture them. We can do anything we want because God's on our side. And, and you can see how twisted it gets. And fortunately, um, enough of the American public has, has rejected that kind of thinking in the recent election. But we have now an incredible opportunity because... In the 60s, this flowering of psychedelics, why was it that so many people who were involved with psychedelics, like uh, John Lennon and the Beatles, why is it that they focused on peace, on opposing the Vietnam War, on supporting social justice and integration? What is the role of the psychedelics? Now, we know that the CIA was thinking at this time that they could um, perhaps defuse the political energies of the youth at the time, um, they were speculating about distributing psychedelics. One of the main distributors of psychedelics in the 60s was a CIA guy, and it's hard to tell if he was doing it on his own or doing it under um, orders, but it was this idea that maybe you take people who are focused politically and you turn them inside. You turn them inward, and they have these kind of hallucinations. They, They get sort of diffused from political action. On the other hand what happened is that a lot of people, when you have a successful psychedelic experience, which is really just the same to say as a successful mystical experience, and you can have mystical experiences without drugs, you can have them with drugs, you can have them with fasting, you can have them all different ways. And what it seems is this product of the psychedelic experience, the product of the mystical experience, the fundamental aspect of it is a sense of unity, a sense of connection with everything, with all of life with the animals, with the plants, with the whole planet, and that you identify beneath the normal ways that we think of ourselves, in terms of gender, in terms of our religion, in terms of our nationality, in terms of our race, that there's something deeper than all of that. And that once you can have that on an experiential level, then your politics is different. So where we see ourselves now is the rise of fundamentalism all over the world. And we see that in Islamic fundamentalism. We see that in Christian fundamentalism. We see that in Jewish fundamentalism. In most every religion now, there's this resurgence of this grip on the old thinking, the, the literal thinking, even in the ayahuasca churches. I mean, you kept saying about how the shamans are always the he's. I mean, you have these cultures that are homophobic, that are hierarchical, that are patriarchal. And yet, they have this incredibly freeing psychedelic experience at their core. So what that means is that culture dominates even the psychedelic experience. And what we saw in the 60s was enough people had this primary mystical experience that it generated the environmental movement. the anti, It helped support and fuel the anti-war movement. There was just a lot of good that came out of it. So what happened in the 60s was, on the one hand, the reaction to when psychedelics, when drugs go bad, There's a lot of people that had uh, committed suicide, actually, uh, because of difficult psychedelic experiences, or took new risks, or went into hospitals and never came back. There was just a lot of casualties. And yet, really what was going on is the reaction to the psychedelic experience going right, producing social change, producing activism. And I think the key mistake of the 60s was the self-identification as the counterculture, That once you think of yourselves as separate from the culture that you're in, as somehow or other an elite advance onto the future, you're not... I think of ourselves in a way as scouts to the future. That's the way Burning Man is like. You're a scout. And then what you bring back is the key. But if you are counterculture, it's like you want to find your own private island. You want to leave. You want to go away. And when you do that, and that was sort of the key, I think, of Timothy Leary and others, you end up building this inherent conflict with the culture. And the culture then came down hard. And Drugs Were Criminalized, Controlled Substances Act came through in 1970, psychedelics were criminalized, and the overreaction was that psychedelics were taken out of the scientists' hands, out of the research labs, all over the world. So that where there had been thousands of studies in the 50s and 60s with psychedelics, by 1971, it was over, And because the U.S. is such a dominant player in the world, and particularly the way we can manipulate and use the U.N. and other cultures like, other systems like that, we've been able to export our drug policy. It's one of the most pernicious exports of the United States. And all over the world, research was shut down. Starting in the middle 60s in the United States, by 71, it was complete. Now, we've had a sense of uh, many groups and many scientists all over have been trying to bring back the psychedelics into the laboratory. And so you are now at this key turning point of a psychedelic renaissance. And really it's more of a cultural renaissance in terms of opening up to diversity, opening up to going beyond prejudice. And we have this opportunity to build a new world and to build it on this deeper foundation where people can have this core mystical experience. So we now have psychedelic research projects taking place all over the world with almost every single drug that was researched before, except for LSD. So this first phase, this end of this 40-year cycle, is going to come to a a conclusion once we finally have LSD research started again, somewhere in the world, in humans. And that's about to happen. Uh, We have a project going on in Switzerland with LSD for people who are dying with anxiety. There's a lot of work with LSD in the late 60s, early 70s with cancer patients. There's is funding some projects with uh, psilocybin for cancer patients. And we have now a study uh, about to start at Harvard Medical School with MDMA for cancer patients. The last psychedelic research at Harvard took place in 1965. I mean, the whole concept to cheapen drugs has been they're all recreational. They're all for hedonistic, escapism kind of purposes. And that, that's, I think, really a very pernicious thought, and it's not about just having fun. It's about opening to whatever that is. And you'll find that you can have the deepest, most beautiful experiences as you go through the, the difficult phases. I mean, that's, that's just a general way to think about guiding your own experiences, and really do recognize that it's on us to demonstrate to others, those of us who have decided to incorporate these substances into our lives, that we have something to offer, that it's something, what we
1: bring back. And that concludes this week's coverage from the SSDP conference.
4: It's time to play Name
0: That Drug by its Side Effects. Shortness of breath, slow heartbeat, weight gain, fatigue, hypotension, dizziness may mask the symptoms of low blood sugar. Stopping therapy abruptly has led to chest pain and heart attacks. Time's up. Talk about dependence. The answer from GlaxoSmithKline, coreg for hypertension, heart failure, and heart attacks.
5: Stop the violence. The drug war claimed two more innocent victims last month. Catherine Johnston was an 88-year-old Atlanta woman. Narcotics officers were either operating on a bad tip or on no information at all. Their informant now claims that he did not tell police a crack dealer lives at her address. When the police burst into her home late at night, Catherine Johnston did what any other fearful elderly woman would do. She grabbed her gun and fired. The police reacted. Ms. Johnston died. In Queens, New York, a bachelor party at a nightclub ended in tragedy when undercover officers opened fire on a vehicle carrying the groom and two friends. Police fired 50 rounds at the unarmed men, killing Sean Bell the night before his wedding. His young bride-to-be, now a sort of widow, cheated of her future. These are just two of the thousands of tragedies, large and small, which are an inevitable byproduct of this insane un-American war on drugs. They are the reasons we are working to change these laws. We owe that to their memories and to ourselves. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org.
2: This is Terry Nelson speaking on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. This week's government buzz on the net is all about robo-tripping, the abuse of cold remedies, in most cases by young teens. The LA Times reported on Tuesday, December the 5th, 2006, that since 1999, Teen abuse of hidden pills, robitussin syrup, and other common cold medicines has risen tenfold, according to the data from the California Portion Control System. The widely available and inexpensive medicines are growing in popularity, while use of illegal drugs such as SCC, LSD, and date rape drug GHB are dropped, according to the same report. The study was based on a review of 1,382 calls made to the California Portion Control Center over a six-year period. Involving cases of dextromorphin exposure. Those calls were generally made in emergency situations, usually by physicians treating overdose patients in hospitals. And they represent only a fraction of the overall drug use, according to the report. Just do the math. That comes out to one reported incident about every two days for a state the size of California with approximately 36 million people. I don't think this is exactly an epidemic. And of the cases reported to the State Poison Control Center, seven Amounting to 0.5% of the total were life threatening and none resulted in death. By comparison, the number of overdose deaths caused by clandestinely manufactured fentanyl and heroin, as reported by harmreduction.org, is staggering. The current outbreak of fatal overdoses due to heroin contamination with clandestinely manufactured fentanyl has killed over 750 people in at least eight states, including nearly 200 in Chicago, 150 in Detroit, and nearly 100 in Philadelphia. Most of those deaths have occurred since April of this year at a rate of about three deaths per day due to this unregulated drug. There's every reason to believe that the number of fentanyl deaths is vastly underreported, as many jurisdictions near these epicenters may lack resources, coordination, or expertise to monitor overdose trends and conduct toxology tests to identify fentanyl and opioid overdoses. My point is, there have been no deaths associated with the abuse of a regulated drug, but hundreds this year alone attributed to unregulated drugs, it's obvious that our national policy of prohibition does not work. If the distribution and sale of drugs is not taken out of the hands of terrorists and criminal gangs, then we can expect the continuation of the unintended consequences of the drug war. Tortured lives, broken families, and needless death. Believe this not condone or encourage the use of any drug. We believe that drugs are too dangerous to be left in the hands of criminals. It's time to regulate and control them. Let's work together to stop this failed public policy and help build a better future for ourselves and our children. This is Terry Nelson at www.leap.cc signing off.
6: This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's Corrupt Cop Stories for the Drug Truth Network. I have a couple for you this week. First, in Chicago, three police officers were charged Monday in a widening probe into allegations Chicago police shook down drug suspects. Officers James McGovern, age 40, Frank Villarreal, age 38, and Margaret Hopkins, age 32, All members of the department's special operations section are all charged with official misconduct, and Villarreal and Hopkins are also charged with home invasion. Four other Chicago police officers were arrested on similar charges in September. All are accused of robbing, kidnapping, and intimidating drug dealers and using their badges to gain access to homes. So far, the arrests have forced prosecutors to drop more than 100 drug cases. Meanwhile, down in Ashland, Kentucky, a former state trooper pleaded guilty Tuesday to federal charges he stole $180,000 from police drug buy funds. Former trooper Louis Padunovac, Jr., age 41, was a sergeant over the narcotics division in Boyd, Greenup, and Lawrence counties in eastern Kentucky until he retired in July upon being questioned by investigators hunting for the missing money. He admitted in court that he used his access to a state bank account to take money designated for drug buys and transfer it to an account in his own name. Pudunovac will be sentenced on March 12th. He also faces six state charges of fraudulently obtaining a controlled substance. His attorney, David Mussetter, explained that Pudunovac broke his ankle in 2003, got strung out on Lortab, and stole the money to buy painkillers. $180,000 buys an awful lot of painkillers, even on the black market. As always, there are more corrupt cop stories this week, including an Iowa fire chief caught stealing drugs, a New Mexico college cop accused of peddling drugs, and a Pennsylvania cop accused of stealing drugs from busts he made. Check them all out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org.
0: Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway.
7: Mexico produced about 8 tons of pure heroin this year, approximately 2% of global supply. Colombian heroin production is now approaching zero. On the other hand, this year Afghanistan produced 610 tons of heroin, about 75 times more than all South American sources combined up 33-fold since the U.S.-led Operation Enduring Freedom upended the Taliban narcotics production in 2001. A new poll has found that 40% of Afghans now approve of poor farmers growing opium poppies, up from 26% last year. One-eighth of Afghans are now directly involved with poppy cultivation, and narcotics trafficking currently accounts for as much as 60% of the Afghan economy. CIA Director Michael Hayden told Congress last month that Afghan narcotics production and distribution is, quote, almost the devil's own problem, end quote the DEA, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, and Afghan President Hamid Karzai are all imploring the Pentagon to become active in fighting the country's narcotics trade. The Pentagon has so far refused their entreaties. While officials dither, Afghan heroin production increased by half of this year from last. In other news... And This week, Saudi Arabia beheaded a Pakistani citizen and his daughter for smuggling heroin into the kingdom. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network.
1: And now here's our weekly report from one of the founders of LEAP, Howard Wooldridge.
8: This is Howard Wooldridge reporting from uh, Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C. Where, as you may know, I started my new position a month ago as an ed- education specialist, for leap law enforcement against prohibition, and you know what exactly is an education specialist? Well, it's it's kind of a lobbyist light in that I can't actually promote bills, but I'm here today, and, and as I was today on the cap on, on the hill, trying to educate our our lawmakers, the federal lawmakers, that of course drug prohibition is a catastrophic failure, and we need to change it. And as many of you may know, I've, I've been working at this uh, drug prohibition for uh, ten years, and for the last seven, I've been wearing a T-shirt that says "Cops say legalize pot" or "Cops say legalize drugs." Ask me why. And in those years, I've had roughly fourteen thousand people ask me why. And I thought I had heard all the reasons in the world why, uh, you know, why people do or don't want to legalize drugs. But a congressional staffer had a new one for me. His reason for opposing uh, the end of, of uh, marijuana prohibition, in specific, he said, "If we legalize marijuana, eventually the growers will want to receive a subsidy from Washington D.C. to grow it, the same as tobacco farmers now receive, one, or you know, rice or sugar farmers. It will just mean one more expense and subsidy for the federal government." Unquote. And call me naive, uh, call me a rookie, but I have faith that the United States Congress will never ever, in anyone's lifetime, begin to subsidize cannabis or hemp farmers. But that gives you a flavor of the uh, attitude and the mentality out here in in the uh, nation's capital. Another quick story was a staffer from the Republican side that said he agreed that drug prohibition funds Al-Qaeda, funds North Korea nuclear weapons program, causes massive amounts of crime, gets 15-year-olds killed as it gives them a drug, a job option, and um, but he says nope can not cannot change drug law because he believes that there are millions of people out there so stupid they 'll start taking heroin the next day, and so therefore we can 't allow that type of social chaos. You know i told him uh, i talk, I talked to eight doctors who said no that probably would not happen. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we stop guessing? Let's call for a national conference by the smartest addiction doctors in America and see what their professional opinion is uh, on whether drug use would go up or down if we had a legal regulated market. And his response, oh, no, I'm not calling for a national conference. That's for the people on the other side of the aisle to do. We, meaning the Republicans, we won't do it, unquote. And this led to something, as you know, the the old saw is, I'd rather curse the darkness than light a candle. And the postscript of that was, a staffer told me today when I related the story, some people on Capitol Hill actually embrace the darkness. They want to remain uneducated. But I can tell you that I think I am making some headway. Let's say yes to life. And that has gained some traction, Dean. Never forget fear. And hatred. Or lies.
0: Or deception.
8: Big Brother says the war of terror will last forever. Merry Christmas.
1: Like my father always says, there is no truth, justice, logic, or scientific fact sufficient to validate this nearly 92-year-old war on our own people. We've been duped. The drug lords run both sides of this equation. Please visit our website, inprohibition.org. On behalf of Dean Becker, Engineer Philip Guffey, and the Drug Truth Network, this is Chaz Dean Becker hoping you will investigate this century of lies.